You know, it was a refugee family. They were refugees from their own country going into another country to find refuge. Very interesting that God would design his son to go through that. Have you ever thought that we also are refugees? We're waiting for another country. We understand that the world is not our home. This isn't really where we belong. We are headed for another country, to another life, to a incredible life, something that we can't even guess. I mean, we can read the scriptures and get a slight picture of what heaven is going to be like, but we have really not a firm grip on it yet. So let's keep standing, let's keep believing, let's keep moving forward as a people who are looking for a greater country. Hebrews is also written, I think, to many people who were refugees, that they were out in the Roman Empire in clusters of fellowships with one another, and they were cloistered together with gaijin, with foreigners, identifying not with the Roman government, not with their Hebrew roots, but with those who believed in Jesus Christ. And the writer of Hebrews eloquently, though, goes back to that practice and writing in the Old Testament concerning the faith that we believe and we stand on and brings it into the context of everyday life as a follower of Jesus Christ and what it means for us as Christians to truly be Jewish, to truly be those who are called out. And so that the book of Hebrews is written to us. We have our roots back in the Old Testament of what happened there, pointing forward. And we look at these saints like Abraham and Moses and Joseph and Daniel and all of these, and we take them as our heroes. And we understand that that is where our foundation is. But we're looking to another country. And that's what Hebrews is pointing us to. So that the theme that we've taken for this study of Hebrews is looking to Jesus. And this is now my 11th sermon. And thank you for your endurance. And we're talking about, since it's the season, Christmas in Hebrews. And we're on chapter 6, 13 to 20. And the title today is Hope as an Anchor. This is a very basic teaching, and I think that it'll come across very basic. Let's read. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. Genesis 22:17. he's quoting from. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as a confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God 
desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters into the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And our outline starts with the promise in 13 to 15, the oath in 16 to 18, and the hope in 18 to 20, and then I'll conclude with the final verse. The promise. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. God, when he made this promise to Abraham, was in the context of birth, birth of a child. And like the 2,000 years later birth that we're acknowledging at this time of the year, Abraham and Mary and Joseph had a similar sense and feeling of something great is going to happen. And I think every expectant parent has this kind of expectation. And I can remember when Katie and I were, uh, well, she was pregnant, but we were pregnant, (laughs) and expecting our first child. Every parent is looking for the best in their, particularly with their firstborn child. And you know, God said, the firstborn is mine. And that's kind of how we raised our firstborn. Of course, when the secondborn came, we were just as happy. And we thought he was even better than his brother. (laughs) And then when the third came, wow, it was the greatest. It was a girl. (laughs) And she was and is a beautiful person today. And you've had the privilege to, to meet, or some of you have, to meet all three of them. And that has been our honor and our glory to be able to show them off. Of course, all the credit comes back to Katie. But anyway, the Lord is demonstrating to us, coming into our life for the life that he gave us. Have you ever thought of that? It's not like... God was sitting up there trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to pull this off and bring a Savior to these people? No, what he did was he entered into the flow of life, which he designed in the first place. And so it gives me kind of an idea or a hint. He had that plan all along. Have you ever thought that? So... This whole thing of God being way up there. I think we all had that perception, didn't we? Even after I had accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, I thought my prayers 
were way up there to God. Until I understood that, no, he had given me his spirit as Jesus had promised. And that Jesus was living in me through the Holy Spirit. And I understood my prayers were not cast way up there in heaven. But they're right here. God answering prayer through my life. I trust that you have got a hold of that in your own life and understand that he is living in you. Once we were dead, now we are alive in Christ. And it's that also that Abraham understood. And when God made a promise, that was a promise to be kept. But it says that since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will multiply you with one son at 100 years of age. Incredible miracle. And God was able then, through that one son, that one child, to populate multitudes of people. And that picture was what God had in mind for Jesus Christ, his own son. And it points directly to that as a prophecy. 2,000 years before Jesus Christ was born. Amazing. But it's our God. And he's amazing in his promise. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing in Genesis 22, 15, 13 to 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which are on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. What was the occasion of that? God had promised that Sarah and Abraham would have a child and they did. She bore a child. That child grew and became a young boy. And God one day spoke and said, Take your son, your only son, to a place I will show you. And God led them for three days to go to a mountain called Moriah, which today we call Zion or Jerusalem. And there you are to sacrifice your son. What was God doing? He was giving us a rehearsal. He was giving the world a rehearsal of what he was going to do, what plan he had in his heart, in his mind, for all of humanity, how to send a Savior. And so Abraham did that by faith, took Isaac. Isaac carried the wood, and it seems that Abraham carried the fire and then pretty soon it dawned on Isaac, wait a minute, Dad, where's the lamb? God will provide for himself. 
Father Abraham said. So they continued on, and finally they found the place where God indicated was the place. Abraham built an altar out of rocks that were around there, laid the wood on it, and tied up his son on the altar. And then he took out his knife, and he raised it. And the angel of the Lord said, Abraham, stop. Do not do this thing. And there Abraham looked, and there was a ram caught in the thicket, in a bush. God provided for himself. Which means, of course, all of you know this, Jehovah Jireh was the name of that place that Abraham called it. God will provide for who? For himself. We know that, don't we? I've said this for the last couple of years now. Hebrew is providing for himself. Yes, we happen to be the beneficiaries of that. But this was his plan. Our Jehovah Jireh. He's providing for himself for us. So that he might be righteous in what he's doing. Because he's a holy God and we are unholy people. So that we can come to his righteous presence. God was providing for himself. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice, the promise. The oath. For men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as a confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, what? A promise and an oath. What is an oath? An oath is making, well, in in the United States, when we make a promise, at least I think it's still practiced in our courts, but you don't know these days what's happening in the United States. But in a court of law, it used to be that if you were giving witness, that they'd hold the Bible and then you'd put your hand on it. We also have that when we're installing state officials. I think it's still the Bible, but it's soon to be removed, I'm sure. And you're making an oath by placing your hand on the Bible. What I'm saying, yes, I will obey the laws, I will do this, blah, blah, blah. And your word is recorded. He swore on the Bible. God, in the same way, with a promise and an oath. And what did he swear by? He swore by himself, in which it is impossible for God to lie. Can you think of any place where God lied? Is there any recording in the Bible that God even tricked someone? There are situations that that you think, well, God was leading them, but they were thinking they were going another way. But God does not lie. He's not a deceiver. He's not causing us as Christians to be blind followers 
He's opened everything to us. He's showing us the way. And we are following not in blind faith, but on someone who cannot lie because he is God, because he is truth, because he is light, because he is the creator of the universe. And a lie is not in his being to be able to tell falsehood. The oath and the hope. And the author here speaks of hope this way. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. That's the nature of hope, isn't it? The hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. Let's get hold of this a little bit, okay? First of all, I want to just describe what an anchor is. How many of you are fishermen? How many of you are sailors? What is an anchor? I was a fisherman in Alaska for three summers. The sea that we, up there in Bristol Bay, has one of the highest tides in the world. From minus two feet, well, how can you be minus two feet? But that's what they record. It's minus two feet below sea level. The water just drains right out of Bristol Bay. And it probably comes over here to to Japan because Bristol Bay is just right up there. And so, of course, we couldn't go out during that time. And the uh, tide, when it came in, would have a bore, what they called a bore wave, which is a big wave that's just racing along the sand and coming to fill the bay. And it has to do it in four hours. There's a cycle for the tides. And this water just comes rushing in. If you happen to be out with your boat, and the tide is going out. This has only happened to me once. But when the tide goes out, all of a sudden you feel the boat is kind of going like this. and Whoa, the tide's going out faster than we thought. Turn the boat toward where the tide's going out. Why? Because the tide's going to come in in another four hours. And so you have to have your boat in position. Otherwise, when the tide comes in, it'll roll you right over and you lose everything, and perhaps even your life. So, here's what they taught us to do. If you get where you feel like you're going to be grounded and not floating, turn the boat toward where the tide will be coming in as best you can. And sometimes you're a little bit this way. But, one of you get out of the boat and take the anchor, big thing, they're heavy, and walk it out in the case of the tide's because they were 30, almost 30 foot tides, you had to have an anchor rope that was about 50 feet long or longer. And you'd walk it out and sink it down into the sand. And then you'd sit there for four hours waiting. While all your buddies were on shore, hey, Ron, what are you doing out there? So you'd just be sitting there. We couldn't do anything about it, just hoping hoping that when that tide comes, the anchor will hold and our ship will come up on the water and we'll be safe. 
Is that a good picture? That is visually what I think of when I read this. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Where is Jesus right now? He is sitting behind the veil, the clouds and way up there, sitting next to the Father in a seat of authority. That's where the anchor is. That's what we're holding on to. And when the tides are pulling at us, that anchor holds because it's sure and strong. We have an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. You know, the effective part of an anchor you cannot see, right? When you're on the water and you want to just spend the night there on the water, you drop the anchor in and you, you can go to sleep then and not worry about it. But the anchor's doing its work and you can't see it. You have to just trust that it's not going to slip and you be blown into shore. That's the way it is for us as Christians. We can't see it. But from this promise and God swearing on himself that it's sure that for us is security. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. It's like my buddy in the boat. Okay, put the anchor out there about 50 or 60 feet. And so the forerunner goes out there with the anchor and he sinks it in the sand and he comes back. Okay, we're okay. That's what Jesus has done for us. He sunk the anchor for us. And we're sure and secure. The promise, the oath, the hope. Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Who is this? Melchizedek? Let's learn about him. There's something about that name that draws you to it. Come back next week, okay? <laughs> Chapter 7, we're going to talk about Melchizedek. And who was this guy? He was a forerunner. Jesus is according to the order of Melchizedek. This, I'll tell you, Melchizedek didn't have a beginning and didn't have an end. Melchizedek was a priest and a king, not according to Jewish law. You couldn't have both offices. We give praise to Jesus Christ. We lifted our praises to him when we sang this morning. Those are our tithes and offerings. That's what we give him. He's worthy of our praise. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. We thank you for the way that we have 
been able to receive this word. Incredible spread of your word around the world. And why are we still sitting on our hands? Lord, move us this Christmas season to tell the truth about Christmas. Of why did Jesus really come? What was the purpose? Why is this a big deal? Because our eternal life is at stake. Move us with this message, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.